I will never forget the day that I learned the jet was going to exit. Highly emotional day for me, okay? On one hand, it was the first startup I had joined that had hit a threshold of success that I had only dreamed about. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right, in today's episode, I have Charles Mizelinski. He's the Chief Product Officer for Ojo Labs. This is a startup that does AI around real estate, and they've raised over $134 million. And before that, Charles was VP of Product at Jet, which went on to sell to Walmart for $3.3 billion. So he's seen some big things, some ideas go to a very big scale. So in this episode, we talk about, you know, his decision on should he start something or go all in and jump on the rocket ship of these high growth companies. We talk about what it means to be part of a company that does an exit where you get life changing money and what that did to change his life or not change his life at all. We also get tactical on this idea of running product and product marketing at a startup and what that means and how he's been able to do that extremely well. And then at Jet, he worked with Mark Laurie, someone who sold a company to Amazon and Walmart. And we learn what he picked up from Mark as he worked side by side with him. And then finally, I'm able to pull some half-baked startup ideas out of Charles. This is a guy that's done a lot in e-commerce, real estate, and AI. So I like to hear where his head is at right now. But hope you enjoyed this episode with Charles. The dude is packed with some really good advice. I think you'll get something out of it. All right. We have Charles here today. I'm beyond excited. So Charles, first, say hello. Introduce yourself. Hi, Jim. Hi, everyone. Nice to meet you. So Charles and I met in New York a while ago, and I'm actually going to ask Charles this question. Do do you remember how we met? I believe we were connected by people that knew us mutually. And if I recall at the time, and I forget the name of the app, you were working on a product that was surfacing content. And you and I rendezvoused at a place in the West Village or around Soho to meet for the first time and talk some product shop. That's, That's what I remember. And I remember that it was a very good meeting. Okay, I'm glad you don't remember the exact first day because it's burned into my head. So we were in Brooklyn. We met through my sister because my mom was in town and we were hanging out. And I was at a point in my career, overworked, underpaid, underappreciated. You got a real chip on your shoulder. And I thought I knew everything. And so we were at a happy hour. And you're talking about the intersection of content and commerce, all this stuff. And I just I was really feisty that day. I'm not very confrontational. I like jump in. And you. And just to give people context, we're at a nice, friendly happy hour. And there's 20 people around a table. You and I, it's not an argument, but it's a real exciting conversation. We'll say that. And the table cleared. 45 minutes later, it's just you and I at the table. My wife came and tapped me on the shoulder. She goes, hey, Jim, your mom's here. You should probably go hang out with her. And I remember walking away being like, who the heck was that Charles guy? But then I'm like, that might be one of the smartest guys I've ever met. But I was like, who the crap is he? And I went on Google and I looked you up. I was like, oh, he's a big deal. You're doing all these keynotes and there's YouTube videos of you. I was like, oh, crap. But you went on to be so nice to me. You'd always meet me for drinks for some stupid half-baked startup idea. You'd meet with my team and give great product advice. But I really thank you for that. But the first impression was a somewhat heated debate in, in Brooklyn. It was. And it's funny. See, this is the good thing about asking questions like that. You get I tried revisionist history. <laughs> I believe I believe the event you're referencing was in 2013. And I do remember that. I know it was I think it was around 2013. And I think it was a tacos and margaritas event in Brooklyn. <laughs> I believe that's what we were all called together for. And of course, you and I did have the good fortune of bumping into each other and did have a very spirited debate, which as you can appreciate, and as you've probably gotten to know about me, I actually love stuff like that. So for me, probably in the top three of gatherings I've ever been to, because it wasn't just small talk, we got into some really great topics. So that that's right. And I thought you were really smart as well. I thought you were really smart as well. So I'd say that feeling it was immediately mutual, even though we may not have agreed on everything. It was fun, but you're really fun to debate with or argue with because you do it with a smile on your face and you're laughing while you're like one-upping and serving somebody. So it's you punch someone and make them feel good about it. So I I like your form and I like your style. 
I've got a passion for something, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So the question I'm going to start with, because I think it's one that I want to really ask you is, it's a bit of a big question. The path I've gone down is I was working in a startup. I've gone to do my own thing and do this bootstrapped route. Because the thought is, hey, if you really want to build wealth, build equity, you've got to own something. You need to be the founder, right? That's the thing you read. But then you have this other path you could go down where, hey, instead of having to found something, let me just jump on a rocket ship. And there could be pros and cons to that. You jump on a rocket ship that you think is we work, and then the rug gets pulled out from under you. But you have jumped on two rocket ships. You've been on Jet, which sold to Walmart for an insane valuation. You're now part of Ojo that has raised an insane amount of money. So this is something I go back and forth with. What's the right path to go down? Because it's really obviously worked out very well for you. What are your thoughts on that? I think a lot of people ask themselves that question like you. I actually think about that all the time. I believe the juxtaposition you put forward is pretty accurate. It's a funny story, and I guess everything in life revolves around some set of stories. When I was asking myself the same question back in prior to actually joining JET 2014, 2015, I was at a point in my career where I was still young, didn't have a lot of kids or family at that time. And for those listening, I am married with three kids, just so you get a bit of a picture of life and where we are life stage wise. So I was able to take on a lot of risk, if you will, and, and knew that I had this risk profile. I was sitting with a uh, leader who had been a mentor to me in California and Burlingame over breakfast and was talking through options, ideas, all this stuff we could do. And you know, he looks at me and he says, if you have the option to your point on rocket ship to get on someone else's rocket ship and you believe they have a great team and a great idea and also they're capable of guiding that rocket ship to its destination in space, under what circumstances would you say no to that? And his, the thing he said was, which is so true, because building a company is extremely hard, right? And to go back what is now almost 10 years, it's hard to think about. It's I've seen this even evolve in the tech press, if you will. There was this whole moment coming in like the mid-2000s, early 2010s, where it just seemed like creating a company or building a startup was easy. Look at the hit factories that are being made. A lot of that's tempered over the past few years, and people really come to this different reality, which is, of course, building things and founding things is actually one of the hardest things you can do. And the commitment level and the passion you have for doing that, you've got to be all in. So when I've looked at this, these paths and at different times in my career, or different times in my life, I ask myself the question, am I willing to go all in on whatever path that I'm doing, right? And if there's a reason not to go all in, then you can't do it. It certainly is never about them. I do think it's more about what is it you're willing to put yourself all in on. And then if you believe you're great at what you do and that you can form relationships with great people, get the right team, hey, you'll get some outcome at the end of that, right? We may not know the magnitude, but you'll get some outcome from that professionally, maybe something else personally. The framework that I would tell a lot of people they need to really rigorously study is, like for me, for example, I will not die a happy person if I have not personally founded a company and brought together the collective things that I've learned. But I also, at least for my journey as an entrepreneur, I've just felt there's things that I haven't been ready for. And on one hand, you could say that's an excuse. But I think on the other hand, what I would tell you is it's a little bit of self-awareness. I've had the good fortune of working with a number of very skilled entrepreneurs who are different from me and personality, approach, ambition, vision. It's eye-opening. You learn a lot from those people. It makes you a better person. And I reflect a lot on those experiences and say, where am I? And back to that question. At what point do I feel I've got everything necessary to confidently go all into that individual path? Because, Jim, I admire about you is I do think ultimate freedom, which is what most people are searching for to some degree, which is freedom in the latitude to do what they desire. It definitely comes from the hard work that you invest into yourself and into the missions that you believe are, are most impactful, right, and the things you build. So it's a great question, and there's a lot there we can unpack, but I'll throw that back to you for a second. It's funny that you say that you weren't ready to be a founder or CEO as you're literally running product for Jet. And you're not doing these small ideas. You're doing billion-dollar ideas and selling them. And then you go to be chief product officer at Ojo. It makes me rethink, why do I think I'm ready if Charles doesn't think he's ready? And you're like doing things at that scale, which is insane, man. I hope you realize you're working with different decimal places that people aren't accustomed to. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, there's, there's comfort in the team and there's an energy that comes from the people that you get connected to. And I guess for the different tours of duty and even looking at how I challenge myself, and it's funny what you just mentioned, I do tend to gravitate towards the ideas that are a little bit more crazy. 
and that are in the extremes. And I have extreme extents to my personality as well. And so far as things are going extremely well, or they're extremely bad, or this idea is extremely great, or, you know, extremely awful. I think in venture back companies specifically, and this is something that everybody should look for, there, there are so many companies that you can join. And there's just different sizes, different types of teams, founders, ambitions, and missions. But if you really are looking for the ones that are probably worth betting on, there's the general advice. You can look at the investors and the other people that have done the due diligence that have backed those individuals. That tells you one side. I will say the thing that has attracted me to different founders has been of the individuals that are building those companies, their innate curiosity, ambition, and charisma that gives people energy because building companies is hard, severe ups and downs, right? And then number two, are they doing something that has the likelihood to be an extreme success or be an incredible story I'll tell people one day, even if we don't get it to work? And that keeps us out of this situation from ending up in companies that are, we build a product, we get some product market fit, things are going well, we're generating revenue, but there's never a moment where you go, we did it, right? Where's that moment where you go, look what we did and you're so proud of it. So I don't think anyone in life would like to be a zombie. And those opportunities are the ones that I think you have to realistically think about market filtering out because you can predict where they're going to end. You'll have a nice job, you'll get some experience, but you won't end up getting that feeling of, we set out to do this extremely hard, crazy thing that everyone told us was never gonna work and look what we did, right? And there's a huge amount of energy that comes from that. You unlock things in yourself that you otherwise would not tap into when you're in moments like that. That's such a good framework, whether you're opening like a donut shop down the street or you're trying to do something that changes real estate for the world, you're still gonna probably put in the same amount of hours to get this thing off the ground. It's why don't you swing for the fence and do something big, something that could have impact. You've hit on going after CEOs that have charisma, that are magnets for talent. So at Jet, you're working for Mark Laurie, who, I mean, he has sold one company to Amazon, diapers.com. He then sold a company to Walmart. Talk about a guy that can do big things. What did you learn working side by side with him? What are some things, whether it's directly from him or just watching him that you take away? So that's such a great question. I'm probably going to reflect on that and the lessons from that particular tour of duty for the rest of my life. And I'll tell you why. One big thing I took away from, and Mark actually talks about this a lot on LinkedIn and when he's in the press, and it's even the name of his new venture fund when he talks about VCP, vision capital people. I see that stuff now not being in his ecosystem and I know exactly what he's talking about because I lived through it with him, both Agenda Walmart for uh, just shy of four years. And that is really what one of the big lessons is. You approach things back to that opening statement with an ambitious vision that seems almost unattainable, but if you nail it, it will change the world or really change things around you, right? Number two, you then start getting really rigorous and strict about understanding what type of people you need for that. And I'll tell a story about Jet. I'll tell a story specifically about Jet on that aspect in a second that I think was magic. And then, of course, number three, there's always this advice, which is on the capital side, be conservative, raise small seed round, you know, be mindful. And Mark's in this other extreme where he's basically like the great ideas need the funding to get off the ground, to get on the launch pad to see how far they will go. And take the bigger swing initially, right? Like really go to market to go to market. Don't go to market just to build, measure, learn for five or 10 years and see where you end up. So really interesting entrepreneur in Mark and his. There's this other things too, and I wish I could show everybody a picture of the jet office. There's these other things about Mark as well that are brilliant. And in the moment, you don't realize how brilliant they are. But as you step back and look at it, they age well. Jet put a lot of money early on into people and brand, really early on, ahead of when most companies would do that. And we had this, what with this opulent office in Hoboken, New Jersey that overlooked New York City, and which again, for a startup, is a rich asset to have. But all of that basically created this feel that you were doing something important, that you were involved in something special, and that just the picture of the city, we used to stand there and look at that a lot. And you just realize like how big the opportunity is. And that was the word inside of Jet that a few of us had was we called that the swirl that you would get caught up in this emotional swirl that really charged you to do things and to approach things with a different level of caliber than you would have otherwise. Almost how an athlete feels in a stadium packed full of a crowd, right? So that was also this other thing that I've just reflected on, which was it wasn't just the people and the way that things were framed and how ambitious it was, what we were trying to do. It was also the environment that was created that facilitated all of that, right? But yet, just on the people side, Everyone that came to work at Jet came for the mission. And this is another thing that's like a, a Mark Laurie one-liner that is true, right? Hire missionaries, not mercenaries. 
You don't want the person to work for you that wants the highest paycheck or the most pay. And all of us, all talented people have ways that they can earn more money and change that particular aspect of their life. You want people who believe in the mission and furthermore are willing to show their commitment to the mission by making an extreme personal sacrifice. The extreme sacrifice that all of us were asked to make at JET was on the financial side. I mean, the salaries on a competitive basis were extremely low. There was no one on that team that did not take a massive step backwards financially to bet on what we were going to do. And everybody had that in common. JET also had fully transparent compensation. You knew what everybody made. There was no negotiation, so it was extremely fair. Another thing that I loved, because I've learned that I'm a bad negotiator in life, and I'm fine with that, <laughs> and that afforded me. And I'll tell you something else as well, and this goes to your opening question. When I met the JET team, and it was Mark, and I ended up spending a lot of time working with one of Mark's lieutenants, Scott Hilton, who just taught me a world of things about operations, thinking about product differently up-leveling business skill. When I met that team, when they were making me an offer, I said yes before I even had a title or paperwork. I didn't care. This goes back to your rocket ship question. And I was famous for this inside of Jet. I, I didn't even know what I was saying yes to, and I'm pretty lucky it worked out, okay? But I just had, if it makes sense to tell you that at that point, after having been in three other startups, through ups and downs, I spent time in that company, time in that ecosystem and in that office, met the people that had signed up for that mission. And I was like, this is incredible. It's going to be challenging. And I don't even care what the job or the, or the numbers are. I'm on board. Just tell, just tell me when to show up, right? That really speaks to a commitment. And in a similar spirit, coming down here to Austin to be CPO at Ojo Labs, it was pretty much the same, the same thing. I tried to negotiate a bit more this time because it was just a <laughs> level position. Still not good at that, by the way. Still yeah. terrible. But it, it was the same framework here, which was met the entrepreneur, saw the ambitious opportunity, loved the background and the track record. You mentioned Mark had done Amazon, then Walmart. The entrepreneur here, John Berkowitz, had previously sold a company in New York, like Mark did in the three to $500 million range. And I looked at this one and I said, this individual, this entrepreneur is going to keep swinging bigger and bigger because mission-driven individual, right, that believes deeply in the things that they want to impact in the world and are being very thoughtful about how they bring on people and capital to align with that vision to take the market. So those are just in a nutshell, some of those big lessons. And that was a really, in those years working at Jet, likely sped up what I was able to do in my career on a professional basis, probably by 20 or 30 years. And I'm not kidding when I say that. I believe it. So, I mean, that's good advice for anyone that's trying to start something. If you're trying to get an A plus level team, so get someone like you even interested, it's like creating that environment, having these big goals, that's impressive. And for people that are like, okay, I'm going to jump on this rocket ship, what should they, th and like, not trying to get you to say finances, you're on this rocket ship, there's this insane outcome being sold to Walmart. Is that life changing for you as far as the windfall? Are you now flying private? Do you have a, your own jet? <laughs> it's so funny. It depends on how you're wired as a human, right? I will tell you that you learn about a lot about yourself based on the different milestones that you achieve in life. And sometimes you have dreams or imagine how something will be. And then the moment you're in it and you feel the reality, it's so different. And here's a great story on this. I will never forget the day that I learned that Jet was going to exit. Highly emotional day for me, okay? On one hand, it was the first startup I had joined that had hit a threshold of success that I had only dreamed about. And I was a part of the team, right? Like a real part of the team, okay? And I had impact on that. And I could feel that. So there was that emotion. And then number two, as you're alluding to, there's also the windfall that comes from that. The half-life on the windfall side, and I mean this when I say it, I think that lasted about 48 hours. Before, and it was so strange. I had all these thoughts in my head. What would that look like? How would that feel? Think, how will things change? And it took 48 hours for the existing routines just to return, still going to work, still doing the things we were doing, not terribly materialistic. And it was like, wow, half-life on that, almost two days right? The emotional part of what we achieved, I will never forget. But those other moments just became, they're just digits somewhere. And I, it, even to this day, and I, I've told other people this and some other founders that I know that are approaching or that have gone through their success milestones, I said, what will surprise you most is how quick the euphoria from at least the financial side of this thing will just bleed away. And it's absolutely fascinating. And I do think you see that in a lot of the world-class entrepreneurs. And this is so interesting, right? Like, you look, and even as there are billionaires going to space right now, which is such an interesting part of society, see, that's the thing. Those people, have, those people truly have enough wealth to do whatever they want to do. 
And here they are trying to get to space as if they're bored. It tells you something that it's when you take a step back, the media and the way that sometimes as a Western society, we look at success, we focus on wealth and look at the homes they have, look how many cars. But when you actually look at a lot of those successful people, they're still grinding. They may change their ambition based on what they've achieved, but they're actually still working, right? And many of them are working later in age. And what does that tell you about where they're actually deriving happiness from, right? What is actually getting them out of bed? And there's a lesson in all of that for all of us because it's getting down to the fact that what's getting people awake and energizing them is the impact and the dream of what they can achieve. And everything else is basically just gravy that's, that's coming in, right? So yeah, that's what I would tell you about that moment. And it was, again, gave me the energy to think that I could swing bigger and that there were bigger risks that I could take, but also that it, it was, it's to this day something I've thought about so much, which was how that felt, what I thought it would be like, what it actually was. And here I am working again, just like everybody else. <laughs> It's so true. Retirement isn't a thing, which shows you that you should focus on what you want to do and just play the long game. However, that was a really good answer. You still dodged the question. I don't know if you bought a Maserati or like a super yacht, but that's okay. Did not. All we did, all we did was put bigger windows in our house. That's what we did. <laughs> true story. That was it. I like light. We had this tiny house in New Jersey that we had basically bought to put our young family in. That was the cheapest house in the neighborhood we bought in. Our realtor was appalled, for real, right? For real. And that was actually how we had tailored our lifestyle. Like when I was at the Jet Era, and even as I'm here at Ojo, I've been pretty disciplined about just keeping things conservative. I like having the latitude to take risk. I'm one of those people wired that way. I would impart that to everyone listening, right? Your ability to take risk and to pursue your dreams is somewhat governed by how you're living your lifestyle. And we keep it pretty mellow, right? In fact, I was very glad when Jed exited that I already owned a house. That's one thing I've reflected on a lot. It's like, gosh, I'm glad I already owned these things. We already had a car too that we didn't like. Didn't buy a new one. Just kept it, right? It's like these two things that we could basically bleed into or do something ridiculous with, we, we were constrained by. And that was good. It kept everything in check, kept us humble, and kept our eye on what, what's the real prize or what is it we're actually after. So yeah, no, nothing exciting. Very boring answer. I think we bought like a, like a ponytail palm. It's like 80 bucks. I think we did that. Very boring answer. Yeah, but that's, that's funny. It's like, again, I'm telling you, like, what did, we, what did we actually derive joy from? Success event. Wow, huge exit at the time. I believe it was the largest private exit in the US that had ever occurred. Unbelievably mind-bending, right? But yeah, everything else in the life was like pretty basic. I don't think our neighbors knew what had happened. Probably better, right? Grass was still dead. So <laughs> just, just living life normal, if you will. Yeah, I, I do think having the, the freedom to do whatever you want, have that nest egg so you can be in an offensive position and not worry about paychecks or anything but that's exciting all right after the ojo ipo we'll uh, have to bring you back on to see what you actually spend money on we will yes it, it affords certainly that those things afford a lot of privilege right and that's the thing but i grew up in west virginia and came from a part of the united states that is very it's different appalachia has its own subculture and pretty interesting way of life and how people live uh there so a lot of that has personally influenced me with regards to my drive and what I want to achieve in life. I think for a long time, I was running towards something, if you will, and really thinking about how I grew up and what I wanted to actually achieve. As I've, as I've matured, I've so come to appreciate all of the different ways that people choose to live and get happiness in life. And I look back at West Virginia now, and those people are some of the happiest people you'll ever meet. They may not have much, but they are extremely happy and kind people. And there's a big lesson in that as I've come out of New York back to Austin, and as I've gone through these different ups and downs of the career, I've really come to appreciate the fixation on that and how important that is to achieving what you want out of life, et cetera, not to get too theoretical. But a lot of that's what's in me as well and in that drive. Also, why I like gravitating towards these extreme opportunities, right? Go big or go home. See what you can do with your life and where it takes you. Yeah, it's so true. It's, you can have these big goals, wanting to retire and go do all these things. But it's like, do you like what you're doing right now in your day to day and setting up the life you want? Um, that That's awesome. So I want to get I'm actually really interested to hear about John and about Ojo and all that. But I'm, I actually want to start with this one, because especially with you doing so much around e commerce and real estate and AI, because the whole premise of this podcast is like, if you're starting today, what are some half baked startup ideas that you have? You're like, you're Charles, you're 22, you've got big goals, big dreams, you know what you know right now, what would you do if you were starting today? Some half-baked ideas. Okay, so general theme of all of my half-baked ideas, I have a huge personal affinity 
for the intersection of people and technology. So when you look at businesses, we can talk about what Ojo is doing, which fits into that perfectly. But when you look at businesses like DoorDash, Instacart, even what we were doing at Jet, because e-commerce is actually all about the fusion of tech and people, right? E-commerce works because millions of people manufacture, supply, and ship products. But there's also a ton of technology in that as well. I'm fascinated by those. And I would tell every entrepreneur listening that if you look at the world we're in right now, the biggest mistake that people make, and this happens time and time again in the history of building companies and in the history of change in industries, it's an amazing thing. When technology first shows up to something, and let's stay on e-commerce for a second. Let's go all the way back for those that are old enough to even remember. Let's go back to mid-late 90s, the Web 1.0 era, first real boom of the internet, first big change moment. There was a moment there when everybody thought that all groceries were going to come from Webvan, that we thought we'll get all of our, we'll get some of our items online from places like Outpost.com. These companies basically are now dead or exist in a very different way. And all of those entrepreneurs had exactly the right idea, but they were fundamentally timed wrong. And they had expected that change would occur very quickly when the actual change that needed to occur in consumers was going to be more generational or take more time or with the creation of the iPhone and other like mobile experiences, maybe the canvas wasn't the desktop computer. And you have to remember back then desktops were huge, but maybe it was going to the canvas needed to be a laptop or the canvas needed to be an app. So when we as humans are first introduced to things that seem like they're going to change the world, our first immediate reaction is to go, oh, it's going to revolutionize everything. Everything's going to change. We, we need to rush towards it. And the reality is you have that reaction, go 10 or 20 years in the future and look at how things have actually played out. E-commerce, for example, has grown tremendously. And certainly COVID was a tailwind on getting consumers to further adopt e-commerce models for a variety of reasons. But it's still not the dominant way that people shop. I'm not saying it won't be in the future, but I'm saying, gosh, we've been doing this now almost 30 years and we're, and it's, it's growing and there's no question about that, but it has not taken 80% of the market from physical retail, right? The Pareto's actually still flipped the other direction. It's 80-20 now, right? Brick and mortar and digital. Real estate is the same thing. I see the same pattern there, which is, entrepreneurs come into this particular industry and it's like they zero in on the real estate agent and they go, that person who's earning commission doing and under the belief of what value those professionals bring, are they doing enough? Have they earned it? A lot of entrepreneurs go, we need to get the people out of it. Everything should be digitized. Now, look, I'm a technologist. I also love the idea and believe that one day we will be buying homes with the click of a button in mass. I do believe that, but I believe that's going to take 10 to 30 years to actually occur at scale. And I believe there are generations of consumers that have to become familiar and understand why that would change. And I think also with some of these things like buying a house or selling a house, there's a huge emotional attachment that people have to that because for most Americans, the home is the single largest financial asset that they have in their portfolio. So it's not as easy as pressing a button, right? And furthermore, if you don't believe that example, here's the one I love telling people. Good gracious, we still can't seem to sell cars without car salespeople. And that makes my brain hurt because I could argue that a house or real estate is bespoke and location is unique, right? But a car is a car. It is a manufactured good. So it seems like we should be able to sell those online at this point. There's that, like, there, that should be happening as the dominant model. And even there, you still see that there is this reason why. All of those structures exist, and I do think it speaks to generation of consumers. So change does not as occur as quickly as people think it will. And entrepreneurs have to be very the best entrepreneurs. Are that phrase timing? We say that startup is well-timed. We're not talking about the startup. What we're actually saying is the embedded idea or the objective that that startup chose to solve, that piece was well-timed. It's, oh, they got that part of the model right. That's the thing they did right, okay? You saw companies like DoorDash, for example, multi-billion dollar market cap, huge success. It wasn't a new idea. There's Grubhub before that. The, the idea of ordering food online was not a new idea, but they opportunized mobile. They solved the logistics problem of delivery, and they were timed well for what consumers wanted. They basically blew open the marketplace in a way that was brilliant. What's the wave of innovation that's coming behind that? Now you're seeing in the US, which has already happened in Asia. The propagation of cloud kitchens and other formats for now, like changing the way food is prepared. And the reason I mentioned that to the audience is if you had started with the cloud kitchen idea 10 years ago, it's the right idea. Tons of entrepreneurs are doing it now. We'll end up being a huge industry. 
but was the other infrastructure in place with consumers experience-wise, even delivery-wise, to make it work? Probably not. You would have failed with what will, history will likely show is one of the most revolutionary ways in which we will consume and, and basically like attain food. So it's that timing thing is really interesting. Best entrepreneurs understand exactly what they're changing, why and when, and have an awareness that the infrastructure either exists or that they can have the vision and capital to go build it. It's a great call out because so many people are like, I've got to come up with an idea. I've got to have lightning strike and it's all about the idea. And I'm not saying the idea isn't important. There's other factors. You have team involved. But what you're saying is, and I think there's a TED talk on this where the most important thing with startups is around timing. So before you even think with the idea, what is the market ready for? The other question is, what are the changes that happened that changed the timing to be wrong versus right? Because you brought up a good point, like the adoption of the internet, the adoption of a smartphone. Is it like social media as we're now working from home? All of these shifts open up the door for it to now be the right time for something. So it's what are those things happening now or that are about to happen that people should be pouncing on? Yeah. This is one, and Jim, I think you and I have talked about this offline, but I'll put this out to everyone. Biden signed an executive order, what was it, yesterday or two days before the recording of this podcast. So when this is in history, people will be able to date this sometime back to 2021 and said, hey, look, by 2030, we're going to require that half of cars are going to be electric. So I just read that today. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. So what that tells you is this, if you're an entrepreneur, and this is directly to your 22-year-old question, I would be looking at what is going to be the single largest change in mobility in the United States from going from fossil to electric. And I would start to basically work backwards from that date and say, what are all the infrastructure and experiences needed to embrace mobility? And then what reasonable bets could I make when I look at 2030? Let me put some out there. This is where we're going to get into the vision stuff for me. I sometimes wonder, my, my kids are seven, four, and two. My oldest son asks me, when will I learn to drive? And you know what I tell him all the time? Ah, gosh, I don't know if you will. I don't know if you will. You may not learn how to drive. And he's like, well, why, Dad? And I'm like, well, the car is likely going to drive itself. I think the cars are going to drive themselves. Maybe you'll learn a little bit of the mechanics. But I actually, I'm looking at that and I'm going, gosh, you may not learn how to drive. When you start to understand that, and remember that generational thing I said with consumers, the way that they will be raised and how they understand things like, what does it mean to take a road trip? As a child, He's experiencing road trips with an iPad and with immersive entertainment that when I was a kid, I can only dream of. I think I had like crappy crosswords and yeah. mazes that went Maybe nowhere, a Game right? Boy if you're lucky. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so you've got this immersive entertainment experience and the ability with iPads and other digital devices, one day augmented reality to entertain yourself in a way passively or sitting that we've never seen before. And then when travel doesn't involve direct labor from you. What's your relationship with that experience? For example, is it a burden to take a four-hour car drive somewhere if the car's driving itself? Or is it just somewhere you sit and you work or you do things because you can be hands-off? When you start to realize how mobility changes, then you can start taking leaps of thought into other areas, which is, will that change the way that people think about, for example, traveling on an airplane? What's more convenient? Is rail travel even relevant in the future? For real, is it relevant? If you have autonomous electric cars, good for the environment, allows people to have personal space connects all the cities, do the road infrastructure. So I look at mobility and I would tell a lot of entrepreneurs that there is going to be a wave of revolution in mobility. Obviously, there's a few companies, the Teslas, the Lucids, and the Rivians, that at least from the auto manufacturer side have put so much energy into embracing the initial revolution, right? The, the core unit that is required for that, which is changing that thing that we drive that more and more starts to look like a huge mobile phone that we're sitting inside of versus a car, right? Like the time you put a huge screen in it and a giant battery, it's basically like we're sitting inside of our phone again. And that's the first thing that changes. And then you start to go, okay, what is everything that's now going to change around that as a result? What's mobility gonna look like? Why would I stop roadside? What are the different things that I might need if that particular thing is changing? And I, I think you, if you step back and if you really let go of what you know today and think about what things are gonna look like 20 years from now, especially knowing what's going to happen in 2030, it's wow, a lot of the American landscape is going to change and our relationship with that whole journey and how we view that's going to change as well. Particularly top of mind for me since I just drove back in Colorado for 16 hours this weekend and sat there on that entire trip, specifically in New Mexico, asking myself, how is this journey going to be different 10 years from now? And it's going to be completely different. The whole thing is going to be different. And I don't think people realize that. And mobility is so interesting to me because it's such a core driver of the economy. And it touches on a lot of things that I've experienced in my past. 
which is so the rise of e-commerce and everything that revolves around e-commerce is about how you get convenience and how you get access to things very quickly, right? That's like general theme of e-commerce. It's like consumption on demand. Super interesting. And then, of course, what I'm learning in real estate and what I've had the good fortune of learning at Ojo is understanding a lot about more of the empathetic side of technology and really understanding more of what I would call like long duration experience. So obsessing over a process that for people can take weeks to months to years versus an experience that in most apps can last minutes. And the reason why I mention that is because this mobility thing is bringing these two things together, right? Long duration experiences, huge radical change, and it's ultimately going to change the American landscape. And that's very interesting to me. And I would say for young entrepreneurs, it's an amazing place to study and circle and ask yourself, how will this evolve? Because the timing and the catalysts are being put in place for something pretty huge to happen. Yeah. And I love that framework of what will it be like in 10 years with these big changes and then working backwards and just doing this what if game. What if you don't have to drive the car, operate it? What does that mean? What if we're all electric? Like what if? And I and it can be a little bit of a letting your imagination go, but I, but I think that's where those big moonshot ideas come from that you're talking about. There's imagination, but on a timing basis, when you know that there's actual milestones, right? Unfair advantage time and great timing is made of unfair advantages. When you know there's pivotal milestones that have been documented on, hey, by this date, we don't have to debate it. Something is going to change and it's ultimately going to change a lot of things. That's an unfair advantage that as entrepreneurs, we can look at and go, what a gift. The date of change has effectively been assigned. Everyone has to work towards it. And that creates a lot of energy and momentum and opens a door, right? So we don't have to ask ourselves. We don't have to ask ourselves or if someone asked me on the street today, knowing what I know now, they'd say, when do you think most cars will be electric? I can give like a part of the answer. I can say, well, at least half by 2030, right? It's fixed, right? So anyway, you start to look at stuff like that. And even to our whole theme on timing, there are these unfair advantages of knowledge that we sometimes get access to. And then you start working backwards and looking at all of the opportunities that it affords, right? But at some level, to be really bold and ambitious, you have to believe you can change the world or embrace that change moment and see what that frees you to believe is possible. And then back to the Mark Lurie framework, if you get your vision, find the right people and capital to make it happen and, and see where it takes you. That's awesome. I'd love to see a study of all of these inflection points that was the catalyst for businesses. That's a really good framework. So as you work in product, you actually have to take these visions and actually make them a reality, which sounds quite exhausting. And so I really want to get into this idea of actual like product marketing. But product is so, to people that don't know, it's a buzzword. Like, how do you even define product? Your chief product officer, what does that mean to people? You know, you're part of Ojo, AI enabled, real estate. Such a great question. Most misunderstood job that exists because product is actually different in every single company. For some companies, the product people are rigorous on A-B testing, quantitative skills. In other companies, product is called the layer between the business and the engineers. And at companies like Ojo, we are a product-led company. Our product team is a blur between being general managers and discrete business owners of their initiatives and areas, just as much as they're thinking about how to use people and technology to accomplish the outcomes that we desire. And I can keep going on and on with different flavors of what product looks like. So it is a really hard job to compartmentalize. And I think one of the struggles, and I get a lot of LinkedIn questions from people on this, which is how do I get into product? And I end up telling people two things. You can take a job in a company you love in an area that you're qualified for and network with the product team. And I assure you that will open doors. And even at Ojo, one of the ways that we get our younger product managers is by taking them from some of our teams that are providing more operational services. There are people in those teams who early on, even in their career, show the curiosity, the ambition, and the interest that they want to go build something, right? And we just nurture that like crazy. So that makes me very proud. And then number two, and it's almost like the same answer, another really great way to get into product by networking in and meeting other product managers and, and seeing what you're comprised of. Because what most product leaders are looking for are these fundamental traits that are super qualitative on some degree. And then there's this question, do you have it, right? And we can say that's unfair because I do think that's unfair. And is that subject to extreme bias? Yes, it is. And that's why product looks different at every single company. Everyone's bringing their collective bias and saying, this is what product is for us. Walmart, I can talk about this openly. Walmart struggled with this. And I remember I would have these days where I knew we were hitting rock bottom on understanding product because occasionally we would circulate this YouTube video that explained what product managers did. And I would just sit there and I would go, we are slamming into rock bottom because the answer, even for a company like Walmart, 
isn't going to be someone else's opinion of what product is. It needs to be the organization's point of view on why product needs to exist, why are we empowering product, and what is it accountable for? So if you can't answer those three things, I would come back to any entrepreneur, any CEO, and say, I don't know why you're building a product organization. Why are you adding a layer? What is, like, if you're not going to empower that layer, if you don't know why you need that layer, like if you can't tell me, and if you can't state what are they directly accountable for, then I would actually go back and say, gosh, some companies actually don't need product, even though they think they do, because you need to be able to answer those. Can, can you put examples on that? What product is accountable for? Would that be like for acquiring customers, for retention, for sales, or for... All those, absolutely. Do you get direct revenue accountability? Are you responsible for a key part of the MPS score of your business? Are you required to open up an initiative area that may have no ROI, except that it is extending the mode of the organization and you can basically measure your impact on that, right? Net new product introduction, et cetera. It is everything that you just mentioned. So for example, on our product team at Ojo, we have product teams, we call them domain teams. And this goes to your question, how do product and product marketing work together? Spent a lot of time with a friend of mine who has years more product experience than me and is currently an executive at a very well-known Silicon Valley tech firm, close friend of mine, a relationship I cherish. He taught me a lot about domain structure. This is like one of those things you learn in your career and you hang on to it. And basically saying great organizations are comprised of a mix of domains, not functional areas. So this has basically become religion for me. And to your question, how we organize at Ojo, and I'm, I'm able to exercise it now as a leader, so it makes me exciting. When we go after initiative or outcome areas, well, we are a product-led organization. What that means is a product person is going to be directly accountable for something like hitting a consumer acquisition number or achieving conversion or a milestone achievement in a funnel for the business. That's how we think about our product team. The way we organize is by domain. And while people may have a functional leader, for example, product people reporting to a CPO, on a day-to-day -day basis, they're actually accountable to a domain team that is made up of the necessary individuals and talent to discreetly achieve that outcome area in a MISI format. Sorry to go on McKinsey with the acronyms, but it is really important. Yeah. It's so good because you hear people talk about, oh, we're a product-led business. We're a product-led team. But for you to put it that way, it's like if your product-led is a product team on the hook, are they the ones driving revenue, acquisition, whatever that is, and then owning different domains? I think articulating it that way for me is super helpful. Yeah, and that's how we think about product-led, right? So product collaborates with everyone, but when you're looking for the one person to go to and say, is it all happening? Have you influenced all of these parties to be successful? That falls on the product person. So I've heard for years this thing, product people are mini CEOs. This like It's like this idiom almost that spreads around the product community. That is factually untrue at most companies. Because most companies don't understand why they have product, what product's accountable for, and how they should get things done, right? It's like product's most jammed in. And companies that truly understand this evolved role of product and that it's actually a hybrid role that is bringing together more than just technology skills, but the fluency of driving and understanding the customers in the business, that's where you get the true product-led organizations. And it makes the job for product people stressful and very hard, right? It does. It also falls back on something else that's one of the key talents you have to have as a product leader. Great product leaders are masters of influence. The organization will not directly report to you. So again, if you're a master of influence, if you understand how to communicate and bring people along and bring them energy, and if you can set a strong vision and direction that gets people to up-level their skills and do the things that they believe they're not capable of or do the things that the organization believes they're not capable of, you get magic. You talk about to be a good product person. In a, I have a few questions. I'm going to pop into this. Like the skill sets you have to have, because you have in your previous career, you've done some dev work. You've done, I remember you told me you did sales a little bit just to get the reps. You've mentored, but you also need to be able to drive stuff and have these soft skills of driving a team. Like, I don't know with Ojo, how much did you have to convince John, the CEO, that this seems to be product led or was he already on board and looking for you for that? So sorry, I asked 20 questions in one. That, it's a great question. I'm going to start with the last one. John was one of those founders who understood why he wanted a product-led organization and what he wanted it accountable for. And I learned that within the first five minutes that I met and spoke to him as into, because I asked him the question, why hire a CPO now? I asked, I asked everybody that, like, why now? I'm almost cynical about it. Like, you don't need that. And I would tell him, I'd, I'd try to sell him out of it. I'd say, you don't really want another voice at the table trying to shape your opinions and your vision. And that's, I, I wasn't being in jest when I'm saying that. Great product people want to help shape the future. So they're both one of the most important hires you can make, but also one of the ones that can prove for a strong-willed founder 
to be most difficult to manage or most difficult to attain because if that relationship isn't right, it can cause utter chaos within the organization, competing viewpoints. Those two leaders don't seem like they're on the same page. John, for me as a leader, immediately hit the threshold on the clarity of understanding where the company was, what the vision was of what he wanted it to attain, and could crisply articulate why now is the time to up-level the product organization and look at bringing on a CPO with the right DNA for the company that was being built. That was it. And I knew, and I heard that answer in five minutes. I didn't know if I would be the right individual for that role, but I was blown away at the clarity of, got it. So that's why product is existing. And obviously it's going to be empowered and it's very clear what you would like it to achieve. So that was super impressive for me. And then of course, as you learn more about a company and and more about the ambition and the mission, you go, wow, this, this thing could be huge. So Ojo, at least for me as a leader, is a dream product position because of the latitude to impact an industry that effectively has no impact from tech. Real estate's like somewhere in 1992, from what I can tell. Just enough technology that stuff shows up on the screens, but not enough that anything works in the way a consumer or even a professional would expect it to. But being part of a team that has a, a vision, both near and long term, of how we're going to shape that, understands how to time the way that we're going to shape that, what levers to pull, when and why, hugely exciting right? Hugely exciting. And being able to build an empowered product organization of like basically star talent that are given an incredible amount of latitude and autonomy to run their areas and to basically, you know, show what they're capable of. It's amazing. Two more questions and I'll let you go. I know we're like hitting time. With Ojo specifically, this is a a normal startup from the sense of like, oh, let's idea a small round. Let's like grow, get product market fit. You all have a really impressive team. You've acquired companies. You've done big things. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm trying to pull up the numbers, how much you've raised. It's in like the hundreds of million, I believe, or like right below that. If you put in the acquisition, talk to me about when you're doing things like that, what's the goal, what's the future for Ojo other than world domination? Because it's pretty impressive to see what you guys, and the team you've built, like the CMO Karen, she's a stud. Tell me, like, where are you guys going? We are the most quiet and humble company that is in what is called property tech or real estate. For everyone listening, what we do at Ojo is we build a guided marketplace for real estate. So from my e-commerce background, I have a love of marketplace dynamics. The challenge in real estate is you need a guide through it. Real estate is the only industry that as technology has shown up, the journey for consumers and professionals has actually become more complicated because there's been a federation of new decisions that you can make. Let me give everybody some data. Last year, over 5,500 companies in the US gave consumers a loan. So for example, let's assume you need a loan or a mortgage. How do you choose which of the 5,000 plus companies you should work with that will best be tailored to your needs? How do you do that? You're not going to meet all 5,000 of them, by the way. All right. There are over 106,000 real estate brokerages in the US. So if you're working with a person or in, how do you decide between all those brands? Or actually, let's go to a bigger number. There's over 1.5 million real estate agents in the US and also a high amount of turnover in that community, people coming and going. How do you know which relationship is right for you? Real estate ultimately, and this is what I think a lot of people get wrong, timing-wise right now, and what we're working on at Ojo and our guided marketplace, real estate is actually is actually all about fulfilling and creating great highly attached productive relationships where when people meet each other they end up going wow this is the dream team i need to go do whatever it is i'm seeking to do whether that's rent sell buy etc right this is it this is my dream team you want that euphoria that's actually the game we're in that's our version of fulfillment so the same way that amazon and other e-commerce companies have spent years obsessing over delivery times right item in the right box showing up undamaged we're obsessing over something different we're obsessing over understanding people understanding where technology and humans basically get fused together so you get all of the performance and the amazing things that machines can do. But we allow ourselves to have room for the unique touch of empathy, human intellect, and intuition. See, that's the thing machines aren't good at yet, right? And even as an AI company, we know that. We can train our AI to do amazing things. We can make that AI look like a person. But people do some things that machines won't do because people sometimes act without logic because they get a feel where they see something and they go, I can just do this. So you find that fusion is pretty amazing. Where we are in real estate right now, you start fixing and understanding all of the relationships. That is absolutely what we are doing through our guided marketplace and how we help consumers truly connect with the right people to serve them given their unique personal circumstances. Where we go 10 or 20 years from that, this goes into something I was mentioning earlier. We're going to see generations of consumers change, generations of agents change, and even the entrepreneurs that are in that community. There's going to be a bigger and bigger drive 
towards more of an end-to-end approach and not just giving people decisions, but basically getting people to the place where the offering you're putting forward, they know is the set of the best decisions they could have made independently. And that's going to ultimately get us to a place where 10 years from now, and this does not exist in real estate yet, in the e-commerce world, and even in like vacation rentals, Airbnb, Amazon, we can go through a few of these. There are these large companies that are the verbs. Real estate doesn't have its verbs yet. There are definitely some contenders for it, but you have to remember this industry's in the 90s. So back in the 90s, pre-Google, there were a lot of search engines, right? There was Excite, there was Lycos, Webcrawler, Ask Jeeves, AltaVista. And a lot of people thought some of those companies had won the market at that time. You got to go back and remember that. People had said, oh, they've won it. And then out of nowhere, these disruptors show up and it's, oh, no, that new company, which we now know is Google, it's, wow, domination victory. Like, they really want it? That's going to happen in real estate. And I would assert to everyone that while Ojo, we are a relatively quiet company, we don't brag very much, and we're a little bit in the shadows about what we do, we absolutely see ourselves as being that company that emerges seemingly out of nowhere that shocks the legacy players that are in the industry and sets a brand new direction for how this thing can work. So that's what we're working on. It really is a fun experience. There's so many parts to Ojo, but one part is right now, as you look for real estate, you might go on some site that has indexed all the houses and you're like trying to find a dream home, looking through filters, whatever. With Ojo, whenever you personalize your experience, like, all right, I've got a family, I've got two kids, I need a backyard, I need a home office, and I like a modern kitchen, and I need a good school district. And all of these inputs, Ojo essentially is pushing the right place for you based on some very specific criteria that you want. And as you all build out what you're doing, it's just going to get better and smarter. It's a much more fun way to invest your dollars in the biggest asset you're going to probably own. So it's, um, I, I've been super impressed. So yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that personalization is deep to our company. Earlier, I talked about a lot of times when you're looking at something, it's, well, well, why are you doing it? Like, why does the company exist? We exist at Ojo. We have this ambitious long-term mission, which is we want to level the playing field for everybody. And we do believe technology plays a huge role in that. Because for those that are not in the real estate industry, if you were to spend a day in the real estate industry, and I did this when I came into this industry, it took me 24 hours of being in it. There's what I thought I knew and then what I learned. It feels to me like a lot of people that work in real estate spend the most amount of their energy on figuring out which consumers they're going to willingly neglect, right? So Jim, to use an example, it's, well, Jim doesn't have enough money. He's simply not worth my time. So I'm not going to answer his questions. I may put him on a mailing list and I'm going to let him be. See, that's a huge problem. You can never level the playing field or serve consumers if you are actively approaching each relationship and going, you prove to me why you're valuable for me to spend time with. And this is where what we're doing at Ojo, whether you're a consumer that's buying or selling a house in the next 30 days or in three years, doesn't change anything about how we approach or work with you. It's all the same, right? And then the question becomes, what opportunities we can create or what obstacles can we help you overcome that are barriers? That's it. And we do that for everybody equally. So while there's other systemic issues that are limiters on people basically getting access to real estate or having an equitable way to access real estate, at least we're starting to solve this relationship piece first and being there for people when others are often not. So again, this is the timing thing. Look, we are so zeroed in and focused on those opportunities and they're going to unlock and create the wave of change that will get people deeply attached to our brands and experiences, which will allow us to advocate even further for them in the marketplace. Dude, it's amazing. So you, you jumped on the e-commerce rocket ship. You're on the real estate rocket ship. Next will be the rocket ship. That's, so what, that's right. <laughs> what, so you've been super generous with your time. I know we're over. I want to ask one question I like to ask everybody. What's the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? The nicest thing anyone's done for me is giving me the hardest feedback that I needed to hear. That's the nicest thing I've ever had. I, I mentioned a name earlier, and I don't want to embarrass him by talking about him, but it's a relationship that means a lot to me. Again, during the Jet era, I spent a couple of years working for Scott Hilton, who was the chief revenue officer of Jet, ultimately was the chief revenue officer of Walmart's e-commerce business. He took so much time to get to know me really well, and he gave me feedback in a way that helped me understand the areas where I was strong, but also really start to understand the areas that I needed to improve or grow, and it was actionable, and it changed my career. Can you talk about some of that advice? Because that's really interesting. Up-leveling communication, understanding how to better synthesize and be direct, clearly being able to articulate what impact it is I want to seek, getting over the fact that most people in life don't care how you do things. So an example of that is, Jim, 
I built this thousand piece puzzle. Let me tell you how I did it. And you're truly sitting there. I don't care. You would probably wouldn't say that to me, but that is most humans thinking about things like that. And you think about when you're junior in your career, you're so proud of what you've done. And you often want to tell people these boring details. They're very exciting to you, but they're very boring to everyone else. So a lot of feedback, if, and people on here probably heard this, if you've ever had a leader or a manager tell you, you need to up-level a bit, it's usually something like that they're telling you, which is you're bringing too much of, of the mechanics of what's happening and people want to understand a completely different level. And when you can unlock that, when you can storytell around that, if you go and look at the best leaders, whoever those are in your sphere, whoever you believe is a great leader, I guarantee you one of the fundamentals they have nailed is their ability to communicate to highly different groups equally and consistently and to land impact and action every time. They can motivate people of any type, technical, non-technical, numbers-oriented, not numbers-oriented, athletic, non-athletic, but they get the outcome every time. So spend a lot of time on that. Also, I will tell you, probably the biggest kick in my rear was coming to terms with experiences like professional patience and really understanding that the world is full of people who are ambitious and great and humbly, there's not much that makes you different except the team you're in and the people that are around you and, and how you are amongst that group. And I, I think that, that was also, we were talking about career earlier. I feel like my own career has been a lot of ups and downs. That professional patience and understanding no matter where I thought I was, there is how people perceive you and you have to work on that. That was a big one as well, right? And I had a few different leaders that I worked for at Walmart that also fully reinforced that. And I will tell you, and I can give you a slightly different answer for what I'm learning at Ojo on a professional basis, because it is different. But that was a big part of the tour of duty of Jet and Walmart was like all of that, okay? So did a lot of training on that. Ojo is a little bit different. If you were to ask, what is Ojo filling in on the professional matrix? I think Ojo is actually refilling my tank, if you will, on understanding empathy and understanding people which has been fascinating. Like this tour of duty, if I was writing a book about my career, is going to be all about that. And all about getting back to understanding how do you grow a company culture? Ojo is now over 700 people. and We've grown tremendously through the pandemic. But how do you actually not just scale a culture, but scale deep empathy and care for others as part of that? And I'm watching that happen firsthand right now. And Jim, it has challenged things that I thought were true about this. I come specifically from Walmart, which employs millions of people. The relationship that Walmart has with its associates on some hand, on one hand is very strong and the company cares about those people. Um, but on the other hand, hey, it is a large business. It's almost like a country, right? Like you can't discreetly care about each individual. And I had a lot of observations and thoughts on that when I was a leader of going, gosh, it seems some days our relationship is literally just business. Like this is a transaction. I am paid. We're working. And it was a funny thing to think about sometimes, right? And because you're in such a large group and the corporate headquarters is like a few thousand people and you do start to really realize everyone's replaceable. Truly, everyone is, right? You realize this, you're like, it is a fact. And then at Ojo, we spend a lot more time a really thinking about the care of people and how you blur the lines between knowing enough to build deep personal bonds, but also allowing yourself to have the freedom to organize and to grow leaders and put leaders in place that will help the company perform. This has been really eye-opening. And I do think there's something to that because the more and more of our life that turns to computers and to phones and to text messaging for meeting in person, by the way, this has all become much more severe under COVID, the more important it is to think about how we create relationships and are the interactions we're having real and do those real relationships create centers of gravity or are they just a veneer? And that's, there's a lot we could talk about on that, probably a whole other podcast, but there you go. That's my, uh, that's my capstone on these experiences over the past few years and where I am. That's so cool. And I agree. Sometimes the tough criticism can be the best thing that can take your career, career up a notch or whatnot. It's, it's what you have to seek. I tell all of my, I tell my uh, direct reports on my team all the time. I ask them a question. One, do you have an outside mentor? Yes or no. Right. And if the answer is no, absolutely go get one, get someone, get one. But then number two, Make sure the mentor you pick is someone that knows you because all of us need someone that is willing to basically push us and to be very frank about what it seems is going well and what is the thing that you should watch out for and maybe think about addressing before it goes sideways for you. You need those people. You look at a professional sports team and look, I'm not the biggest sports guy, but there are some things I know that are true. That's exactly what coaches do for athletes. They see the whole field. They see every dynamic, right? So they're able to give feedback on your personal performance, but also look, here's how the team's playing. Think about this. Everybody needs something like that. We all do, no matter where you are in your career, because growing from when you're like 22 to 32 to 42, the growth never stops. It's just different things and different challenges that you're going to run into relative to what you've learned. And you constantly need that, right? 
So you got to have that in your life. And it is the thing that will change. Every, I'm sure everyone listening on this call is excellent at what they do. But I will also tell you, you can be better. Yeah. To, the second you think you're the expert or you've hit the peak, that's when it gets a little dangerous. Well, Charles, this was awesome, man. There's so many good pieces of advice in here. But where would you like to point people if they want to learn more about you or Ojo? Where should they go? And go to ojo.com. They can take a look at what we're doing at Ojo, learn a little bit more about our mission of leveling the playing field. You've heard some insights on how we're doing that and where we think there are key inventions. And learning about me, I'm easy to Google. My name is unique, hard to spell, available on LinkedIn or otherwise. And that's a good way to stay in touch. And Jim, this has been an awesome forum today. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, Charles. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growthit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.